Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, today, we're lucky to have uh, Randall Lucas. Randall, uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good to be here, guys. So, Randall, you've had a interesting and uh, fun and varied uh, career in Seattle in the startup community, I would say, kind of broadly. Tell me about your kind of your first, like, how do you get into this whole startup arena? How did this, how did you wind up in this space? Yeah, well, sometimes uh, I, I like to say that uh, I've, I've been lucky enough never to have a proper job. Um, but uh, I also sometimes say weird results require weird behavior. And entrepreneurs uh, oftentimes are a little bit weird. Um, I, I actually found myself uh, senior year of college. Um, now, that, full disclosure, this was back in the Web 1.0 bubble days, right? Okay. So everybody was doing startups, okay. right? Pets.com and Webvan and all that stuff. Um, but we decided that we would write an online survey uh, tool to help us um, help somebody get one of his stats classes done. And we decided why not hang a credit card off of that and make a make a product out of it. So we did, and so uh, right out of college, basically, um, I launched my first startup and eventually sold that, and that was an online survey company. Um, I then did a couple of other things in the uh, startup world, I tried doing an online poker analytics company. Um, now this was analytics, not gambling, right? But it would uh, take in your poker history from online poker and tell you about your, your game and tell you about you know who you could beat and who you, how you could improve your game kind of thing. But that was back in uh, kind of 03, 04 when I'd moved back out to the West Coast and they were starting to put people in jail for online poker around that time. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of, shelved that project and ended up um, applying some of the same technology to a retail analytics company where we took in retail data and did things like market basket analysis and checking kind of um, for, for point of sale terminals for fraudulent patterns and things like this. Um, but at that point, I had started uh, you know a few companies, um, none of which was a huge success. And when uh, I was, I was uh, looking to get married around that time. And when you tell a girl's parents you're a entrepreneur and you don't yet have uh, substantial liquidity in the bank, they sometimes hear unemployed. So, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. that never happens. Right. So I went looking for a, um, a legitimizing role. So I'd, I'd look good for my mother-in-law. And um, I'd heard that there was, you know, that th these, these cushy finance, uh, finance and consulting was the thing to do uh, if you wanted to kind of look like a a regular citizen for a while. So um, randomly, I actually called up the only investment banker I knew, um, somebody I had called when I had a um, uh, an offer on my first company to buy it. And I said, hey, I, I, how do I get one of these you know investment banker jobs just for a couple of years, kind of so I you know, look, look marriageable material. And he said, well, I, I don't know about that, Randall, but I'm leaving uh, uh, my post at this venture capital firm I'm working at, and they need somebody who has startup experience and software experience. Um, why don't you throw your hat in the ring? So I did, and that firm was called Voyager Capital. And so that was back in late 2005. I ended up coming up here. So um, you could say that, as in many, uh, many things, you know, um, love was a driving factor, I guess, or, or um, simply not, not being able to... Uh, ever find a, a proper job that wasn't part of the startup ecosystem. Um, and so I spent uh, a few years at Voyager in the back of the house, moved to the front of the house, um, meaning doing kind of outbound stuff in the community and bringing in deals, sitting on boards. 
Um, and then jumped over to help start something called Lighter Capital. And I'm happy to talk about that and give an enthusiastic ad for, for Lighter Capital. Um, and then uh, did another startup subsequent to that and now back at, at Voyager. So that's kind of maybe a longer version than, than you were hoping for, Mike. No, that's great. This is a great background. And uh, I mean, of all the people we've had, I mean, I think you've got some really varied experience from both the startup side and then, you know, to, to have that, that insight as to, you know, sort of what uh, VCs are looking for and how that operation runs. I mean, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. Um, so, so how did you like having that job? Like, so, so how did, how did a real job, even in the startup ecosystem compare to, to what you were used to, or is it a tough transition? Um, no, I mean, it's, look, it's, um, it's a extremely different role and, uh, you know, you go from something where you're measured, you know, even back in those days, I, I, we had Google analytics, right? Back in those days, the, the early aughts, the early two thousands, right? You had Google Analytics, and before that, we had log parsing. And so, you know, we would we could check day by day and hour by hour how we were doing. We were running pay-per-click campaigns and optimizing them. And, you know, every day I'd get an email summary of uh, how many credit cards we transacted and how much. So I was getting, you know, I was was addicted to that very fast feedback loop. And if an ad was working, it was working. And if a campaign was was doing well, it was doing well. Um, And then you, you transition into a world where, you know, an, an, an extremely active, extremely active VC firm might be doing something on the order of, you know, a deal a month. But, uh, you know, Voyager tradition, we've done about a deal a quarter, so four or five deals a year. Um, and those investments, as, as you well know, um, occasionally uh, work out very early, but they, they often take years. Um, mm-hmm. So you can be in the VC world as I was for almost five years and have very few concrete feedback points. It takes a long time. You mean, you mean you make few, you make very few investments, make one, maybe four a year, let's say, and then it takes like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years to have an exit. Well, let's, let's hope it's, you know, four five, six, um, right. but sure. Point taken. Yeah. Yeah, so right. that's that is a that is a long feedback loop. It's hard to know if you're doing things right if you have to wait five years to find out, um, you know, ultimately whether it was a good decision or bad decision, or if the efforts you put in were spent in the right place. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a huge difference. Um, so I imagine that took some adjustment. Um, so tell us about. I mean, you've been on both sides of the table. Um, I, I think a lot of our listeners are startups uh, who maybe interested in funding and maybe, maybe they're pre-funding and kind of curious to know about what VCs are looking for when they come to pitch. You guys, uh, it sounds Voyager work, it works focuses on B2B, uh, products, but tell me about what you guys look for when a, t- when a team comes in and, and, you know, what, what makes a good product, what makes a good team and the types of stuff you're looking for. Yeah. Well, first let me give you kind of the, the vital statistics on Voyager, um, as a, as a firm and, what we look for because that stuff really does matter. And there there's, uh, I'd say compared to 10 years ago, there's a fair bit more specialization uh, uh, among firms and, and their firms are more upfront about what they're looking for. And so you kind of have to um, tailor that to, to what folks are looking for. But at Voyager Capital, we are a Pacific Northwest B2B first institutional round investor. So, Let's take what those things mean for a moment. So Pacific Northwest for us, it basically means north of the Bay Area. Um, look, something like 75% of the VCs in America are in the Bay Area, 
Um, so it's it's extremely extremely uh, well trod path uh, down there for funding. So unless we have a real um, focused reason to be down there. We stick to Oregon, Washington. Um, we're actively looking up in British Columbia, so Vancouver. Um, but generally speaking, it's West Coast for us, uh, X, the Bay Area. Um, so Pacific Northwest, B2B, so we do technology broadly. It could be software, it could be uh, um, software-enabled or tech-enabled services. We've even done a couple things that have a hardware component to them. Um, but we don't do bio, no life sciences. That's typically a different kind of investor. And so it, it's rare to find somebody who does both uh, pure software and something that involves a uh, laboratory or the FDA. So Pacific Northwest, B2B, and the other piece of B2B that I like to, to use as a kind of mental tool is, look, if you sell based on ROI uh, versus based on delight and fashion and what your friends are doing. Um, and that's not to denigrate consumer. Um, it's great to delight consumers. I love to be delighted. But as an investor, we're, our experience is in evaluating um, what, what it looks like when businesses buy something based on ROI and how they talk to each other and how, how um, uh, startups succeed in, in that particular model. And then finally, we were first institutional rounds. So it used to be easy, we'd say Series A, and now, as you know, there's been all kinds of name uh, name inflation, name changing. It, now it's Series C-1, C-2, uh, whatever the case may be. But what it looks like for us, so that first institutional round, is really the first time that a, a professional investor, a financial investor, is um, investing a large chunk and is gonna sit on your board. Um, so typically, um, if I just had to kind of pick average numbers, we're doing a $2 million check out of a $5 million Series A round, and we're going to be one of five board members. Uh, another VC will come in for another equal size piece. That sometimes might be a financial VC or strategic. Um, and so you'll have two investors on your board, um, and then you'll have maybe the, the rest of that $5 million might be your existing angels playing pro rata or... Uh, or something like that. So that's kind of your, your average size of what a first institutional round looks like. We don't do kind of Series C coming in as the third or fourth VC playing in the game. We do like to play nice with other VCs and we, uh, we syndicate. Um, in fact, we're, we try to be very thoughtful about, about syndication because that can be very, very helpful in the early days um, to kind of uh, spread the load among what we consider a, a working board, right? The board is not a uh, honorific, it's a, it's a job. So that's us. First institutional rounds, Pacific Northwest, um, B2B. And so as a result, what does that mean that we look for? Well, we want to talk to anybody in the Pacific Northwest who is uh, building something that's B2B, um, that has venture scale as their goal, um, and who is currently seeking or is considering um, taking venture capital uh, to, to go achieve that. And um, that could be somebody who's doing something that's kind of deep tech and infrastructure. Um, one of our uh, more successful investments in recent years was a company that's doing some very deep tech video transcoding stuff, a company called Elemental Technologies, sold to Amazon Web Services last year. Um, uh, so some very deep tech in kind of video encoding and decoding. <clears throat> um, uh, all the way to things that might be like vertical SaaS, that um, selling a specific uh, application into a specific industry, um, but but with a uh, you know a venture scale outlook. So that's that's what we look for. Typically, we're looking uh, for folks who 
have some market traction, uh, not necessarily uh, post-revenue, um, but generally folks have at least some trial customers uh, that are meaningful trial customers that can point to where we can kind of connect the dots to see where it goes. And we're also looking for folks who want uh, what we call smart money, or at least what we call maybe hardworking money. Um, so if somebody is not interested in having a board that's going to be collaborative, that's going to be working with them, and that's going to be helping to try to, to guide the company if they're looking for, quote, dumb money, then that's not something we'd want to be involved in. Um, and then the final piece I'd look for is capital efficiency. So um, if we kind of back into both the size uh, of the Seattle ecosystem up here, but also the size of our, um, our fund, and our current fund is uh, just over $50 million. Um, it's our fourth fund. Uh, you know, we're looking for companies that will raise no more than typically maybe about $50 million in capital over a successful life of the investment to exit. Um, and that's quite possible. That was the case, for example, with Elemental. Um, and that's, it, it's very possible to build a company um, that does not require more capital than that to, to meet its goals. Now, that says, what does that say about unicorns? Well, we don't want everyone to say that, you know, unicorns are magic to begin with. We don't ever want to say someone can't magically become a unicorn. But if the only way to be successful in what you're setting out to do is to be a unicorn, you need to go get one of those swing for the fences, billion dollar funds involved um, down in the Bay Area. We want founders who are focused on building something of interesting scale uh, in a capital efficient way. So that, I mean, that's, I guess what, I mean, I, I love the, the explanation of all that, but at the end of the day, when I hear all of that and I really think about it, I think, wow, that's, it's no wonder you only make four investments a year. In fact, I mean, it's just, it must be hard to, it must be hard to find these companies. It must be hard. You must, you must spend a lot of time looking. It, how many, how many, how many companies do you look at before you choose one? Like just on average, maybe a rough thumbnail sketch of kind of how many you look at, you think? Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to give a, a, a hard and fast number or ratio um, I, because I don't want, for, for the Bayesian uh, statistical thinkers out there, I don't necessarily want to bias every entrepreneur coming in to say, oh, here's my, here's my percentage uh, yeah, chances. Sure, 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 sure. I understand. But I'm just curious. I mean, how many yeah. of all this, I mean, Pacific Northwest, defined broadly, you know, north of the Bay, Vancouver, have you, have you, and what, I've, you know, how are things in Vancouver right now? What, what's the environment like up there? There are some great companies that have come, come out of Vancouver recently. What, what's your overall perception of that growing, like a growing, vibrant, great place to start foraging around or to look for companies right now in Vancouver? You think it's a great spot? Yeah. A lot of great talent and teams? Well, first, just so, just so you don't think I'm dissembling totally, we look at hundreds of companies right. a year. And as I mentioned before, not only folks who are just about to raising or, uh, or, or currently raising that first institutional round, we look at folks when they're, you know, uh, two guys and gals uh, and, and an and an idea and a whiteboard yeah. um, who who have a an idea uh, and a direction that they're going. So we're we we meet with you know professors at the UW um, or down in in Portland or at uh, uh, research labs who are looking to spin out technologies. So you know we look at a wide variety of um, of, of stuff and you know I, I I hesitate to to say you know we we make so many rejections. What we try to view this at, at each step as something where you know, we can add a little value. So if we can make a customer introduction, potential customer, get some feedback uh, from that customer perhaps, um, 
that's due diligence for us. It also helps a company. So that's that's the way we like to look at it. Is it's not yeses and nos um, because something that I I definitely have learned. It only took me ten years, Joe. Um, but the you know something I've definitely learned is that VC is not a stock picking game. It's not a, it's not an the market doesn't go by and you pick which stock you want to ride and then you sell it when it goes. It's an active uh, uh, um, you, you change the course of what happens. So that said, you asked about Vancouver. Great place. I was up there two, three weeks ago. Um, let me give you my snapshot of, yeah. of why I'm pretty bullish on it as far okay. as a place for very early stage um, startups and for a creative ecosystem. There was a Vancouver Startup Week event. It was located on a block. Um, uh, it was located in a coding school, I should say, one of several up there that was uh, on a block that had no fewer than uh, two high-end coffee, like cold press, cold brew, whatever coffee, two uh, juice, organic juicing <laughs> bars with wheatgrass and all this kind of stuff, um, and one uh, internet famous pants company that I recognize from a Kickstarter campaign. So, you know, it's it's got that kind of vibe. It's got that kind of creative thing. It reminded me a little bit of University Ave in Palo Alto, maybe, okay. minus some of the very high-end uh, retail, but kind of that vibe, the Koopa, Koopa Cafe, if you will. It reminded me a little bit of down at Cherry Street, First and Cherry, that vibe where, you know, there's there's folks walking around with laptop bags. There's people talking about, you know, their their servers and their Series A round and all that. I mean, there's it's kind of got that vibe, that startup vibe. Um, Is there, for people that are in, I mean, we're, we're, our audience is primarily Seattle, but for, for those young startup founders who could really start their company anywhere, I mean, there are a lot of good reasons to start in, in Canada. I, I've heard that there's some great tax credits and things, particularly around game development. I mean, have, are you seeing any like, uh, you know, aside from the cultural fit, like tangible financial advantages to being there? Is the How's the labor market? How's the tax treatment? Uh, I don't know if, if you, assuming you, you kind of have that insight. Yeah, so you know, I'm not I'm not going to be the best um, best one to articulate all that, but what I will say is that we found that the um, the R and D credits that you can get through the the government up there are substantial. That said, they're substantial and they're incremental. Um, you know, you, you look at an investment, you're expecting that a company you know that might be doing a million in annualized revenue when you invest. Maybe they're doing 500k. I mean, you're expecting that they're going to be doing you know, a hundred X of what they're, of what they're, I mean, you're expecting great things, um, almost, almost preposterous things. Right. Um, and there's got to be a rocket engine that's going to blast them, blast them through the, right. Right. Uh, I see what you mean. Pool. So, you know, you, it, it's meaningful in the early days and it's very meaningful towards capital efficiency. And it, there can be crucial times where, you know, an extra, you know, let's say 30% of capital efficiency might be exactly what it takes. Um, uh, that said, you know, I think it's a benefit and I think it's, uh, it's at the margins and at the edges. Um, it wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't make an investment like, oh my goodness, there's an R and D tax credit. Um, but, right, but for, for a startup founder who maybe is on the fence about whether to start in Seattle or Canada, assuming they have that choice, uh, um, you know, maybe that's an upside. I, well, I was kind me, of curious to know what draws people guys. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I don't want to suck up all the oxygen here, but you guys are the legal eagles. Can you do that? If I wanted to go start my next company in Vancouver, what, what would I have to do? Yeah, that's not, I, I wish I had a better answer. I think, I think Canada in particular, 
uh, from what I've heard, is very open to seeing people bring businesses to them. And most countries, I think, are. Um, although I do think that sometimes you have to show up with some money. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they, they want to see you come come there and create some jobs with money. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, that's, I'm not that's really sure. A founder, a, a, pre, a non-funded founder who doesn't have customers yet is in, indistinguishable from – a, you know, a charge of a guy. the state. <laughs> yeah, you're right. right. Per my earlier, think... my earlier uh, mother-in-law comment, it's indistinguishable from an un- unemployed. So, you know, I, 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 I would wonder think the if decision, the BC government it might would, be, uh, would frown on that. It might be. I, I guess I'm thinking of a situation where maybe you have, a co- you know, th- that strange strange situation where maybe you, you're in Seattle and your co-founder's in Vancouver and you're trying to figure out where to plant your seed. Um, I imagine if, if, um, you know, assuming that you have some people that have a presence there, um, that, that are stakeholders in the company that you might be able to start a company there and still employ yourself or employ other people cross border if you needed to, and, or or maybe come in to visit and work. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not really sure, but it's, it's, uh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I've heard, I've heard it's a, it's a great uh, system up there uh, and uh, and the tax credits uh, while they they probably aren't going to make or break your company if you are a young founder uh having some tax credits might be a, a nice uh additional additional boost um, well, well to be yeah. to be clear in those early days uh, of a company um there's a lot of things that can make or break you and so you know 30 per 30 percent difference um that you know i i've i've heard entrepreneurs say oh well when we get our shred refund basically we're going to get two more months of runway um, yeah. Two months of runway is that's, that's life and death sometimes in startup land. No doubt. Yeah, I, I have a, a question for you about B two B stuff. So I, most of the projects that I've worked on, startups that I've been involved in, are almost all B two C, and partly that's because I, I can relate more easily to the customer, and uh, and I you know it's it's I think in some ways it's easier to sort of randomly break into a as, as a consumer product. You mentioned if you make something delightful or or that that is uh, you know fun. For individuals, they they might buy it, but that that same thing doesn't translate as well to to businesses. I've always been a little intimidated by B two B businesses because uh, of the sales process and the fact that I don't have the experience selling into big companies. What, do you have any advice for folks that are t- traditionally working with uh, consumer facing products and and whether they should, you know, h- how they can make the transition and whether they should be intimidated by that and and how to how to get around it? Do they do they I guess my question is: Do you need to do you need to hire hire specific salespeople that know how to sell into that market, or can anybody with a that's willing to make cold calls, uh, you know, get get their foot in the door with big companies trying to sell software? Well, first, let me. I'm going to latch on to cold calls for a second. Um, if if listeners have not heard of rejection therapy, or if they haven't, you know, had a day where they've made, uh, you know, thirty or forty cold calls. Um, you should you should just do it. It's once you've once you've called down a list, once you've made a prospect list of a couple hundred companies, and just called them all, and you're you're gonna you're gonna feel you're gonna go home and you're gonna hug your pillow and you know drink some some warm tea with lemonade or something lemonade or something, and then but then then after that you're bulletproof. You don't care. Like what do you what do you care? Yeah, what's thirty-one rejections versus thirty? Yeah. It's just you know you start to build a thicker skin, I guess. Yeah, and it's and I think you you realize that like well, there's a lot worse things than being hung up on. And then the most beautiful thing in the world happens is that you're talking to somebody and they have this title, and they're in this this industry, and and she says, "Oh yeah, we've been looking for something like this. Um, can we set up a conference call with my boss?" Or you know, th- that's I mean, it happens. 
Because in B2B land, if you're doing it correctly, you have a value prop that hopefully isn't randomly picked out of thin air, but that, that really matters to certain people, and it's a question of finding them. It's finding the people that your value prop resonates with, communicating it clearly, and when it works, it works. Now, I'm not saying it's just you know all sunshine and, and flowers, but, um, but that fit is, uh, in my mind, is much less scary than the question of, well, which, um, you know, which chat program are millennial, uh, mm-hmm. millennial, I'm Joe, Joe's looking at me like you're an old guy. What are you talking about? <laughs> but I was in a room full of, uh, startup people yesterday and there were three recent grads from UW and uh, many more folks who were, let's say more August in their tenure. Um, and the, the CEO of the group said, how many guys have Snapchat on your phone? And it's just nothing, just silence. Um, then we heard one my daughter has Snapchat. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, what's what which is the next big chat thing that's going to it's going to happen, you know, I predicting that is not a game uh, that I play. But, you know, you 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 pick out sort of a, a vertical industry or a horizontal title of somebody who's going to have a specific kind of problem, you can call those folks up and you can talk to them and it's a little intimidating especially if you don't come from that world. You kind of got to learn their jargon, learn how they talk, learn where they hang out. Um but it's it's very doable, and the beautiful thing is is that when it when it clicks, it clicks. So that's my take on B two B, and and you'll you'll find in B two B too that you, you get customers who are happy with their ROI, and they'll they'll you know they'll some a, fee, a phenomenon we've discovered um, that we talk about sometimes with <clears throat> entrepreneurs is what we call the get me promoted report. So a lot of B two B products. Um, if you've got the opportunity, you create the get me promoted report so that whoever is using your product looks like a genius, right? It's um, some kind of, it's showing the ROI, not just because it's for a sales thing, you know, sell it once and then forget about it and walk away, but even after it's sold, keep them selling internally, get your champion promoted, right? No better way uh, to, to, to lock that in and to, to have the, the folks who are using your product come out looking like geniuses. Um, so that's another thing that I, I love about the, the B2B piece is that you see some patterns like that over and over. And it's certainly not something I think entrepreneurs should shy away from. I shied away from it when I was early on in my career because, you know, I'd never worked in, in a business. <laughs> so I had no idea what these what these seemingly scary, far off people did or talked about. Um, but you talk to a bunch of them and, and you realize that there's uh, quite a bit to it. Yeah, well, I do on the legal side, when I help clients with legal work, I do lots of B2B uh, software deals. And I can tell you, uh, you know, without divulging any confidential information, you know, for the for the listeners out there, it's it's amazing how much you can charge for software when you're selling it to a business as opposed to an individual. Um, I mean, if, if that's not clear to people already, that's a, it's a fantastic reason to be focusing on on B2B solutions, because um, even though the sales cycles are a lot longer uh, I mean, the, the, the payout can be really great. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been, I've been, I'm always been attracted to that, uh, area. It just seems like a, a, a great way to build a, a real robust business that has customers that are really writing real checks. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe one of these days I'll, when I'm done with the projects I'm working on now, I'll start thinking about B2B stuff. Cause I, I really think it is a, it's, and it seems to be a little bit less, um, particularly for me coming out of the app app market. You know, the, the app store has been relatively stable, actually, but it's it feels very, um, uh, I, I don't know, um, 
like it changes very quickly uh, with the wind, even which apps are making money and which apps aren't. And it's hard to predict what will succeed. Um, it seems like going into the business market, you might get away from that a little bit more and maybe have a better chance of predicting success or, or, um, or building a business that doesn't somehow uh, fade away after six months when people are tired of the, of the idea. Yeah. Well, so that, I mean, that, that reminds me of another thought that I've, that I've had here and there, but how shall I put this? You know, if you are going to market on someone else's platform, on an app store, something like this, you have enormous advantages from, as opposed to going from a standing start, right? You've got sort of this, you've got access to distribution. It's sort of, you've got this payment stuff all buttoned up and taken care of. You've kind of, you get this little sort of brand effect halo of being on this app store. Um, but you are, you are now captive to that, to that platform. And, um, I say that in a different way from like, oh, is your app iOS and you can't, you can only sell it that way. Or like, as opposed to like not captive that you couldn't possibly make a clone of your app and make it on Android or something like that. But what I mean is, um, you are, you are trading a number of things that you could control about your own destiny for those advantages, those early advantages. And one of them is, is it's kind of like, uh, you know, it, <laughs> it's <clears throat> it, it's a more level playing field that you you may not want to be on a level playing field. Um, the ease with which you got in <laughs> to go do your to go do your app uh, means that it's easy for everybody else too. And if you go direct, as, as is often the case with B two B sales, um, you know going direct alone is not a moat, but you're kind of looking with your flashlight in the corners and in the, in the crevices and, you know, behind places that not everybody looks, everybody knows the app store. It's the market is very kind of liquid, very efficient. Um, that might be one of the few places where the best app actually wins. Right. Um, so getting in there, it's going to be very efficient markets, a lot of competition, harder to, to eke out an advantage. Um, versus if, if you're the only, the only vendor in town, or if there's, you know, two vendors and the other one's in Sweden, uh, of the specific thing that you're doing, it's going to be easier to build that early advantage to kind of stay under the radar, to stay kind of in the blue ocean where, um, you're not in that, you're not in the, the fight of the, the red ocean. That's, that's one thing. That's, that's one thing I'm opinionated about that it may offend some people, but I can't stand it when entrepreneurs come in <clears throat> and, Somebody asks about competition. They say, Com- I love competition. I welcome competition. I like to get in the market and compete. Then I don't, what, <laughs> what, why do you want competition? I don't want to invest in somebody that has a ton of competition. You should be finding some place where nobody knows that the market exists. Go plow those fields and you'll get competition. Trust me, it'll happen. But like, don't welcome competition. Just stay, just keep them away. Um, right. Go, right. go do something that nobody thinks is interesting until it's too late and you're, and you're the winner. Um, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of that book by uh, Nassim Taleb, the, the Black Swan. I mean, he talks about that idea, and uh, he talks about the unpredictability of you know, no one knows what the next great thing is. But but uh, but it reminds me of what you said. I mean, go search for things in in in, in places where people aren't looking. That's 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 a really I think that's a really good 
that's a really good way of looking at it and thinking about it. Um, well, so I I appreciate the fact that you guys are here in Seattle and and just you'll talk to anyone. I send you guys a ton of people to talk to. I super appreciate that, and I think that's a huge community benefit um, to everyone. And uh, so if people want to people are building something that they, they they'd like to strike up a relationship with you about it and get feedback, they can reach out to you by, by email or something, Randall. Is that the best way to get you or Yeah, email's great. Um I'm I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm pretty Googleable. And I try to at least respond with something uh, constructive. If it's a if it's bio or if it's something that's way off target, something yeah. that's consumer focused, um, and I'm probably not going to be able to say much more than thanks, but no thanks. Randall, we should tell everyone on the show who's listening to the show that we do the uh, we do the uh, you do the office hours, and I happen to join you out at the UW's computer science department once a month. And uh, you're also going to start doing those out at the information so the high school, the information school at the UW as well. And so, um, if you want to. Uh, so Randall and I just sit in the in the atrium at the computer science school once a month and just chat yeah. with people. And if you wanna, if you're in the neighborhood or uh, you wanna come talk to us, don't hesitate to come come see us. Uh, you can we, we sort of announce the our next dates sort of on Twitter and and LinkedIn and various other places. But you can always email Randall or me. Yeah, and, and typically we're we're there the first Wednesdays of each month during the academic year. Um, and depending on on how things are, go, we. We, you know, we may uh, we may cut one off if it's in the middle of vacation or something like this. But during the school year, we're there first Wednesdays. We do 10 to 11 uh, at the iSchool, um, and then 11 to 12 in the Allen Center for Computer Science at, at UW in the atrium. And so uh, that's that's a lot of fun, and we get everyone from you know professors to grad students to undergrads rolling up on their skateboard, telling about their app that they're coding up, and. Um, yeah, we. I, 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 I love. I love to see somebody come up, um, and we've seen some amazing. I mean, amazing things. Uh, yeah, we're not making this up. There was a real skateboard. There was a skateboard involved. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, uh, I, I, I always just get a total charge out of that whenever I see some really young person come to me and, or come to us and show us some amazing thing they, they they built over the weekend or something. I'm always like, wow, this is this yeah. is awesome. Yeah. I want to hang out with you and just see see what happens. Yeah, I just kind of I kind of just want to just put in like a, an RFID tag in him, like a like a worker with. <laughs> Just track him over the we're years. Gonna, we're going to tag see him. Where see where his pod goes. Yeah. I mean, that kid's going somewhere interesting. Yeah. No, yeah. you got to. Those are the those are the people you just kind of kind of hang with. See what happens, Mike. That's you. That's actually you, Mike. <laughs> I did. I did have a skateboard in college. I, I skateboarded all over college. That was a long time ago. <laughs> you know, at the UW, at the UW, you could uh, if you were if you were leaving from say uh, fraternity, you know, the fraternity area or sorority area, you could grab a skateboard and you could skate nonstop downhill all the way to the medical center. Oh yeah, yeah, and that was right. actually a great ride. It was it was a it was a, it felt like a fifteen minute twenty minute like ride. Um, anyway, it's that's that's a good way to get around. You don't see it downtown very often. <laughs> On college campuses, it's a great, a great way to get around. Well, no, I object to that. I was I lived on Capitol Hill, right up at Pine and Broadway, okay. for about the first ten years I lived in Seattle, and um, it was it was common to have uh, have some guy on a skateboard just zooming down, yeah, blitzing past the cars, yeah, um, and uh, and make their I, uh, on my bicycle I could make it door to door to down here to Pioneer Square in six minutes. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Skateboard probably about as fast. Well, Randall, thank you so much for being on the show, folks. Randall Lucas, uh, if you want him, you, you can get his email online or call us and we'll give it to you. And uh, super appreciate you being on the show, Randall. Any party thoughts, Mike or Randall? 
No, this is great. We should we should have you back on because I have so many questions about B two B and and how that works. Um, and and hopefully there are questions that would translate. So maybe one of these days we'll have you back and we can talk talk more about it. Yeah, well, you know, I'm really pleased that we we got down our list. We got approximately zero out of the uh, three or four <laughs> things we had uh, queued up to talk about. So you know, we had, we had, we'll have a, plenty we'll more have to a talk about. Chapter two. Nice. All right. Thanks, Mike. Great. great, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you all next week.